Hello, hello, and welcome to Hub Cymru Africa's podcast. I'm your host, Kath Molongo, and I'll be leading you through this series as we discuss what's important to the Wales Africa community working in global solidarity. This is the second in a series of podcasts that are being recorded with support from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office under the Small Charities Challenge Fund. As I'm sure you know, Hub Cymru Africa offer a range of support to the Wales Africa community, whether it's help finding fundraising, one-to-one advice, networking or training you're looking for, our support is free. Just get in touch by emailing advice at hubcumriafrica.org.uk. But first, let's have a listen to this podcast. Today, we're talking about funding and I'm delighted to welcome Hub Cymru Africa's very own Julian Rosser. Julian, please could you introduce yourself? Hello, Kath. Yes, uh, I'm Julian Rosser and I'm a Development Support Manager at Hub Cymru Africa. Okay. Julian, can you tell us what we can expect from today's podcast? Who did you speak to and what did they have to say? Well, I've been talking to uh, Yatinda Fidei, who's the founder of Reese Africa. Um, and Yatinda is based in Nigeria, but she was speaking to us from uh, the US. So a little bit of a rustly line occasionally. Um, and also I was speaking to Vic Hancock-Fell, uh, and she's the founder of Fair Development and uh, co-director at Raising Futures. Um, and both Yatinda and Vic have got a lot of experience of uh, implementing uh, solidarity projects and working in partnership between uh, Africa and uh, people in Europe. So uh, it was a really interesting chat. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. Should we have a listen? Oh, why not? Hello and welcome to our first fundraising podcast. Uh, welcome to you, uh, Yatinda Fadei, the founder of Reese Africa. Thank you for joining us today. Um, and hello also to Vic Hancock-Fell, who's the founder of Fair Development and co-director at Raising Futures. Welcome to the podcast. Yatinda, could you please introduce yourself um, and tell us a little bit, a bit about your background and your experience, particularly in fundraising? Thank you for having me here, and it's such a pleasure to get acquainted with Vic. I'm the founder of a youth-led local NGO in Nigeria called Reese Africa, and typically we provide access to electricity for last mile rural and marginalized areas without prior access to electricity um, through solar and agnostic solutions. We also um, promote environmental sustainability through advocacy and uh, campaigns on issues such as climate change and plastic pollution. Um, working on grassroots level to create change, I've been involved in several fundraising rounds. I'm currently working on a project and we are exploring crowdfunding on Indiegogo and uh, civil-private uh, partnerships to enable um, the bottom line to Fundraising, especially for local NGOs, is not a small feat. Oftentimes, the non, we have to like rely on the goodwill of people and charity, you know, to get things done for people that need it. But that's not to say that my organisation has not also benefited from grants, where which is where like the bulk of the funding comes from. And um, in raising these grants, we've been able to partner across board to enable us you know win or get approvals okay thank you very much that's uh good to know and vic uh tell us a little bit about uh, about your experience and background please hi thanks for having me 
um, and it's good to meet you, Tinder. Um, so I've been either a volunteer or trustee or a staff member at a small UK charity working through partnerships internationally for um, almost 15 years. I started out very much as a novice in the sector, having previously come from a teaching background. Um, started out kind of not really um, considering, my, considering myself to be a professional fundraiser and kind of learning skills on the job and then furthering my understanding of fundraising through training and, and, and various qualifications as, a, as I've sort of progressed through my career. Um, all of my work has been through partnerships. So my experience of fundraising has always been in fundraising for organizations uh, where the work is delivered through a partner. So I'm hoping to be able to share some learning from that experience today. Brilliant. Thank you. And um, we are particularly focusing on partnerships and the idea of partnerships here. Um, although this uh, podcast is about it's about fundraising and particularly about grant fundraising, we're looking at that through the lens of partnerships. Um, and while uh, a lot of our audience is based in Wales and have got um, partner organisations in Africa, I think that the um, the lessons go right across all sorts of different organisations, all sorts of different partnerships. Um, and so I hope that it'll be quite interesting and relevant um, to all sorts of people working um, in partnerships. Um, and so I'd like to start off with you, Yatinda, um, to think about uh, from your point of view, really, what is what is important about partnerships um, and what, what characterises an effective partnership um, between different organisations in different countries um, who are looking to achieve something together? Okay, um, thank you very much for the question. Um, so I would reckon that the partnership that Welsh organisations and African organisations are currently in is for a greater good. So it's like we're already one foot to establishing um, success, so to speak, because the truth is that African organisations like African local NGOs cannot do it alone because um, in as much as they have like the probably have the capacity to um, implement the project and all that they don't exactly have like the funding to drive um th this project um they also might not necessarily have like the um research or um research inputs or you know several other factors that enable a sustainable project to you know deliver and this is why the work that we do, you know, is tied to um, the sustainable development goals. And if you notice within the SDGs, the 17 goal talks about partnership, which kind of like reiterates the need for um, partnerships to deliver ambi ambitious goals, such as ending poverty, tackling climate change, you know, getting rid of inequalities. And I, I would reckon that, um, the goal 17 in itself is arguably the most important of all the um, UN SDGs because achieving other goals like no poverty, access to water and sanitation depends on it. And that's to show you how important partnerships are. Um, 
for everyone to benefit, everyone needs to contribute. I mean, that's the whole essence of partnerships. So similarly, the work that we do needs partnerships and fundraising being like a huge part of that pipeline also needs partnership. Um, at a time where, you know, profit and purpose are converging, you know, th things are changing rapidly. The characteristics of um, an effective partnership uh, for grant funding is where everyone is involved, you know, and allowing like a bottom top approach such that you are taking the needs of the beneficiaries into consideration and kind of allowing the, the flexibility or innovation to ensure that the community, you know, leads the solution that you're implementing. But oftentimes than none, the donor already knows what they want. They give you the grant as long as it meets the, the, the you know, the paper criteria, giving you lead to, you know, to no choice to, uh, to the implementing organization to, you know, we use probably like the local NGO to tweak, you know, um, but instead they tweak in a way that they want to meet the donor's criteria instead of the community okay. criteria, right? And uh, there is no way the project can be sustainable. And I think this is one of the reasons why you know, community project fails. Yep. Okay. So you'd say that involvement, that everybody being involved is a, is a key part of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a genuine partnership. Um, and Vic, if I could, if I could come to you, what do you, what do you see as being um, those key characteristics of an effective partnership? So I think, yeah, I'm completely kind of in agreement with you, Tindy, that we have to listen to people who are living and working in the communities that the programme is for. Um, you know, certainly from my perspective, as somebody who's worked or volunteered in a UK charity delivering programmes, we might have a, a high level vision or uh, idea of the kind of area of work that we that we want to work in. But we have absolutely no lived experience of of any of those details and so to work out the details of what needs to be delivered the activities and, and the programs we absolutely have to listen to partners um, and we have to work in partnership and um, local partners are the experts and nobody is going to understand the context that we're working in like they do i think that's one thing that's really powerful about smaller organizations is that they often work in hyper local sort of situations yeah. you know there's often one small organization working in a particular community and they've been there for five years or ten years or longer and unlike sort of um unlike perhaps larger organizations uh who roll out a particular response or a program across multiple communities smaller organizations often have that really specific knowledge of that particular community and so working in partnership um is just completely essential to to ensure that the the good work gets done. I think characteristics for me of good partnerships are quite often well. I suppose a mix of so the softer skills um, and and the more kind of personable side of things, and then also some of the nuts and bolts. And I think more of that personable side certainly being open and honest and having trust. Yeah, I've. You know, often in a, as you Tunde kind of alluded to here, often in a partnership of 
sort of Western organization with an organization delivering programs in, in the country of operation, there's, there's a power dynamic there of usually the Western organization coming with the money and the yeah. partner organization being the recipient of that money. And so I, my experience is that because of that power dynamic, you have to work quite hard to create real honesty. Um, okay. I've worked really hard with our current, uh, the, our current partner organization to unpick a bit of the nervousness, I think, to be truly honest when something isn't working. Or if I come and I'm really excited with an idea of some, I found a funder and they fund this and can we go for it? What do you think? And I think at the start of our journey together, my colleague might have said, yes, of course, let's go for it. Um, and now I think yep. she feels much more able to say, no, Vic, that's not going to work. Um, and I think perhaps there is sometimes the fear from partners that if they ex if they express uh, frustration or like they're not happy with a certain direction, that perhaps funding could be at risk or, or jobs could be at risk. And so I think to build a really effective partnership, there has to be real trust built through just regular displays of putting trust in your partner organization and allowing your partner organization to take the lead in discussions and decision making. Um, I think some of the more nuts and bolts side of things is making sure that there's dedicated resource um, and that your partner team understands fundraising. So sort of partnership from a fundraising perspective. Um, often we're asking our implementation partner team to sort of help us with fundraising asks on top of what they're already delivering. Right. And it may not be a skill set that they're used to, um, to used to have used to being asked to to use. So perhaps having some sessions on why uh, the the fundraising why and, and giving some bigger picture uh, background as to you know why we keep coming to you and asking for this kind of information and why we keep coming to you and and asking for your uh, you know perspectives on these particular activities. Um, I think being aware of the wider context as well in a partnership is really important so that both partners are aware of the kind of the evidence in their sector for yep. what is what is working. Um, I think this applies just to any organization doing anything really, but I think it's really important for both partners to be aware of where they sit in the context of the work that they're doing to make sure that they're kind of um, delivering work that's in line with internationally recognized best practice and and just that they're not sort of operating in isolation and, and maybe there's opportunities for wider partnerships outside of just the kind of UK strategic or donor versus implementation partner. Uh, I really see a lot of opportunity for like wider partnership and collaboration as well in the small charity sector and I don't think we do much of that really. Okay. Are you thinking they're widening out partnership to lots of different organisations from lots of different countries or parts of the world or uh, well, is that more within, within a country? Within a country, I think. I mean, for example, my small organisation operates in technical vocational training for young people in Kenya. 
I know half a dozen other charities working in a similar region in Kenya who are working on menstrual health hygiene management and WASH. Let's say I want to implement a menstrual health hygiene uh, program at my organization. I shouldn't need to start from uh, scratch there in designing that uh, and kind of researching the best ways of implementing that because I know that there are several amazing small charities who are experts in menstrual health hygiene management, for example. So we've started to identify extra bits that we might want to do as an organization. And then rather than kind of go back to the drawing board and come up with what the best solution would be, we would try to approach a another small organization who we knew was an expert in that field and, and kind of use them as our starting point. And we would still obviously make sure that it was relevant for the needs of our particular community. Um, but I've, I've learned so much from other small charities and I, and I find that generally small charities are really willing to share, really, really, really willing to share their learning. Um, and we've, we've approached uh, similar funders because of being recommended them by other small charities. So I think, we can think outside the box a little bit with partnerships and, and consider going um, a little bit wider, perhaps, than just our immediate implementation partner as well. Okay. And um, Yatinda, does that um, does that resonate with, with you? Because you've um, uh, spent a lot of time and done a lot of work developing uh, partnerships. I mean, how, how have you worked and how would you recommend people can work to make those partnerships genuine and to ensure co-creation, ensure that communities are participating? Okay, um, I, I agree with what uh, Vic said, so I'm just going to leverage on what has been said and tie it back to um, innovative, um, well, collaborative uh, models where um, you know, the, you can essentially unpack the power dynamic because there's like a power dynamic to, you know, this kind of partnership. The funder has like the upper hand, you know, and then dictates and, you know, tries to ensure that um, the the budget is reported to like the T and all that. Um, in this kind of scenario, right, it kind of um, puts so much pressure, so much um, dramatic imbalance and lack of like real dialogue between you know these funders and you know, the implementing NGOs and oftentimes they're known you find out that they you know want to make the local NGOs kind of make compromises to try to find a way to you know um, kind of kind of beat the system you know involving themselves in ethical knots or budgetary um, jeopardy and essentially it's wrong but um they they might want to you know employ this means to try to um uh meet other other areas of their other areas of commitment such as operational cost which most of the you know donors don't want to you know take care of they are more interested in like the project um, metrics, like um, so. There's no like flexibility in the funding, right? And the truth is that for a small nonprofit, staff costs are the same as project um, program costs, right? Like 
the staff will still be working, the, the program is still running, you know, and then when the program is over, they still have to continue to pay this uh, staff to ensure probably monitoring and evaluation, to ensure the sustainability of the pro project. So you find out that oftentimes that known, they kind of like pad the budget, which is not right. So what um, donors or funders can do in this sense is to ensure, you know, a real dialogue, ask them for the, the entirety, like what they would need, right? And tell, tell them to come up front without having to, you know, put them in the corner or, um, you know, overwhelm them with um, you, having to budget to the T. And another thing that I realized with local NGOs, um, because they are growing, they don't have so much, um, so much budget to you know, do auditing, do um, you know, do the operation, make sure their operations are up to par. They are doing the real work, but they don't have that extra money to do the, the you know the rest of put like basically put structure and all that. And this kind of like you know reduces their chances. So if funders could um, kind of like um, include um, such structural or operational cost within the, the program cost it would you know give them a leverage to always want to you know do better okay so very very important to acknowledge that just running projects isn't all that it takes to um to do to do these things that actually there are there are costs that are there that have to be met all the time um and that's something clearly that uh we can we can be pushing to to funders to grant givers um and and trying to make sure that they understand that and then the other the other really important point that i think has come through from what you've both been saying so far has been about about understanding power dynamics um and they can be they can be quite complex in a number of ways when you're looking at uh, maybe a small organisation or a medium-sized organisation in Wales, they're possibly grant givers uh, and funders that they're going to, and then they've got partner partner organisations in Africa and in in other places. I'm I'm quite interested, Yatinda, to start with. In the first the first step is is acknowledging and having some understanding of that. I wonder what what you think is the next step. How how do we go about dealing with those power dynamics? beyond simply acknowledging and, and, and starting to understand them. Okay. Um, to change the status quo, I believe so much in it, um, candor, like it requires candor from both the, like the funders and the implementing agency, the grantees, right? Um, and it's actually left to the funders to play this role, right? Because not um, all grantees or not all local NGOs are this proactive. I believe that there should be like some sort of a new contract that promotes um, authentic dialogue between the funders and these people. Like, for example, the funders can start by you know examining the grant application process, or even if if they have to you know apply for the grants together, maybe as a consortium right first of ask for the needs of the um the local ngo without putting a, a, a um without putting a cap so to speak then you can now start to discuss 
you know what to let go what not to let go in agreement and you have to do it from a place of frank dialogue and meaning like it should include clear expectations on both sides including like the budget realities so that the local ngo can develop innovative solutions with the community and communicate you know their findings without you know some sort of like uh, uh, uh without retribution if, if you get what i mean so in in doing this uh, we we what we find is that funders don't even appreciate the complexity of what i'm i'm, I'm talking about like they don't have the okay. time to uh, to do this like they they just want a situation where what the problem you are um, posing to solve matches their paper criteria. If it matches all the criteria, they give you the money, right? Okay. But that 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 shouldn't be the case, right? And then again, there has to be like a a, a way where funders can incentivize um, collaboration or you know incentivize um, projects that have that address interconnected issues. Such a, so that so that they can help to elevate and amplify um, each organization's strength. So they're not just coming from oh we are giving you the funding. Okay, so how about we um, supply uh, get a university to partner with us so that it can supply like a research methods to use. You know, just basically being a part of the solution, not just giving the funding to to deliver the project and everybody goes home happy, but also like being a part of it. It's just like um, venture capitalists they give you the money and they well most give you the money and they also want to you know give you like the support needed to grow your company and they have like you know um a say within the company just to ensure that the company grows so to speak so um i think we can also apply that to what um to helping to you know grapple this power dynamic but essentially the power lies with the funder to be able to you know do this you know they are they, they can enable this new relationship between uh, constructively obviously between their their grantee or the local ngo and them being the fund and funders themselves okay okay um and vic how have you found that in 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 practice um because again you've got a lot of experience of, of working in in partnerships and being quite conscious about where the power dynamics lie yeah definitely i was like nodding really enthusiastically throughout all of that and um i feel like there are several points that i want to pick up on but one of them especially is certainly that point around funders not being happy to contribute to what they might consider to be the overhead costs um of a, of a project and so um i saw a ted talk a few years ago by this guy called dan palotta the name of the TED talk is called The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong. Um, mm. And it really helped me to um, refine my argument against um, thinking of overheads as, as, as sort of a dirty word in, in the charity sector. And uh, if anybody needs to sort of arm themselves with some really great tidbits uh to go up against a funder or somebody who tells you they want to you know 100 of the donation to go on the project then i would really recommend watching that ted talk i actually on principle won't apply to a funder now or accept funding from a funder who won't contribute to the overhead cost of mm -hmm. the organization we include it in every application um if there are people listening who want to sort of read up on this there's something called full cost recovery 
in funding applications where you ensure that in every funding application uh, that you recover all of the costs associated with the particular activity and that would include everything um, down to you know office costs travel costs monitoring and evaluation costs yeah. the cost it's it, the, the amount of time it's taken for me to write this application and to continue fundraising for the project and so we wrap all of that in and sometimes we're creative in the way that we describe those costs and we attribute as much as possible to program costs and i think quite often people can confuse what might be an overhead what might look on the surface to be an overhead but is actually a direct project cost for example um somebody's transport time in going to deliver training and the cost of paper and materials that they might need to deliver that training the training is the is the project cost and the, sorry the training is the project and so all of those costs associated with it and that person's salary that's all direct project cost and so yeah. reframing that for myself as a fundraiser really helped me to recover those kind of costs in my fundraising um and yeah i i just will not accept funding now if if the funder says yes we're going to give you three thousand pounds for your project but none of it can be spent on overhead i just say no thanks it's actually not going to be worth it you know i'm going to be three yeah. grand out of pocket in administering this grant in that case that there are i can't think of the names of them but i have been really pleased to see that there are some movements in philanthropy and grant making where funders are coming together to change this and there does seem to be definitely some movement one amazing case study that I would just love to share with you that I've found on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago is somebody shared the story of this organization in Canada called the Right Relations Collaborative. And they have completely shifted the dynamic in terms of power relations and, and fundraising. And in it, funders must apply to a council of indigenous aunties for the right to fund their work. So they funders have to apply to this council. They have to share their money story of how they earned their wealth and what harms were created through that wealth <laughs> accumulation and how they're going to redress those harms. And if, the, if these aunties accept to participate with them, then the funders must commit to multi-year unrestricted funds that the indigenous aunties get to determine how it's spent and they must provide annual progress reports on their work to build relationships with indigenous communities. And I mean, Brilliant. how amazing is that? I, it's this fan, fantastic case study that was uh, how yeah, well shared are they by doing? someone. I, 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 we haven't got a follow-up. Unfortunately, the article that was shared alongside this series of tweets was behind a paywall. So I didn't get okay. to read kind of what, what happened at the end. But um, I have that's that's a really extremely good version of of that sort of power dynamic shifting. But I have seen definitely nods to that happening with groups of other funders, and so I'm I'm hoping that that will continue. Um, something that we're actually doing at my organisation at Raising Futures Kenya at the minute as well is that in our five year strategy that's coming into place this year one of the pieces in that that I'm going to be responsible for is to work with some of our UK funders to get them to directly fund our partner organization instead of using us as a go-between and I'll be putting to them you know what value do we add as a UK organization that means that the money needs to come to us before it goes to them yeah 
And so I'm going to be interested to see what some of the responses are on that. And But that's certainly going to be one of our big pushes this year is to uh, encourage direct funding of our partners. Could I could I ask on that? It's, it's, it's an interesting question about what is the what is the point of um, the partner in, in Wales and the UK in in many ways. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to hear from both of you um, to, to wrap up really um, is what what is the role of, of Welsh organisations of European based organisations in these partnerships? Is it simply to get hold of a bag of cash um, and to transfer it over to their partner community or or what, what sort of things should should groups and organisations in, in Wales be looking to do and to contribute in the future? Um, maybe we'll start start with you, Tinde. Okay, um, I would say that from a security point of view, um, most of these local NGOs do not have the financial um, capacity. I'm trying to word it correctly, like, so when you ask for you ask a donor for funds, say you're asking for a thousand, um, say ten thousand euros, right, or ten thousand pounds, and um, they ask you to submit your financial statement, right? They obviously want to see that, that you've been able to accrue at least fifty percent of what you have, you're asking for in in the past. That kind of security is. You know, needed so so that you are able, they are able, they are, they are able to get assured that you could, you know, use the money um, to do what you said or use the money appropriately. You know, that security in itself is not so, um, it's it's not rampant in you know local NGOs. So I reckon that um, UK small uh, charity organisations can be like the middleman. You know, because they have like the they, they they can provide some sort of security in that sense where they you know get the money from the donor from the UK donor and then they pass it on to the local NGO. Um, because times are changing, it doesn't necessarily have to be as regards this. It doesn't necessarily have to be for just funding security. It can also you know be some sort of um, partnership where you know this UK small charity could facilitate the exchange of volunteers so there's like diaspora volunteering um with the organization which kind of like with the local organization which kind of like adds value to the project in itself because um people that have never experienced worth what um the global south is experiencing can participate and can broaden their knowledge and even add to you know um at the bottom line, then I also think that the, um, the 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 UK small charity can play an intermediary role between bringing the um, research institution on board, because the local NGO might not necessarily have the you know um, credibility or the you know that that platform so to speak to enable a university like say Oxford or Cardiff University to be part of the entirety of the project. And I believe that if you're able to add that research value, right, 
and you know report it on paper what was done because obviously it's primary data you're gathering from the field right and you're able to report it in academia terms it would you know help secure like it would help um inform the acad academic community of how you know this um, ngo or you know this grant was used to effect change or the models that can be used to effect change in say wash or you know any peculiar peculiar uh, uh challenges that the world is currently facing now and okay. that would do good yeah so you see some some roles there in in bringing in some expertise in brokering other relationships as well as as well as bringing in the cash which is is quite important and vic what what are your reflections on what is the what is the appropriate role and what's what's the best role for UK European based partners in these sorts of um, enterprises? I really ask myself that question daily when I'm turning up to work at a UK charity working in an international context. And I have to say that more and more I'm feeling like actually it's our job and this is this is something that shows up in the the next we've we've just done this strategic planning process at our uk organization for the next five years and alongside our business as usual supporting our implementation partner to deliver the work a huge focus for us is going to be um working towards like a, a, a sort of a, a shifting of the power to our partner organization both in terms of operational decision making and vision and strategy but also in kind of acting as an advocate for them to be able to shift some of the funding power as well. And the, the more I think about it, the more I think that actually we shouldn't be needed really. You know, that intermediary role, if we can advocate for our partner organisations and for local organisations not to have to need us as intermediaries, I, I, I think that that's what we should probably all be working towards. You know, we need to challenge the the status quo and the landscape. I mean, the, the landscape is that there's all of this money available, but quite often local NGOs need a UK registered organization, a US registered organization to be able to access the money. Why is that? And, you know, I've heard directly from funders, well, you know, we need to know the money is going to be spent, you know, appropriately. So it has to come through a UK organisation. So I feel like saying, well, what makes you think that I'm more trustworthy than my colleague Mary in Kenya? And I don't want to know the answer to that. But I think that's our responsibility as the UK organisations is to be kind of challenging the status quo and pushing back against this idea of somehow UK organizations being more trustworthy and therefore the money needing to come through us. Uh, and I think that we, the role of our organizations in, in the UK should be, I feel, in consciously and actively working towards shifting the power so that our local organizations can just get the work done and get the money directly and get the support directly that they need. Um, we, we actually asked the question in our most recent strategic planning process, okay, so if we're successful in this, should we, are, are we going to shut up shop then? You know, is that it? Will that be the end? Um, and I would like that to be the case for our current part partner organization. You know, if in five years we're successful, 
they are accessing the funding that they need directly and they're totally in the driving seat in terms of strategy and and strategic uh, and operational kind of decision making and, and where does that leave us well maybe that leaves us just being advocates for this in the uk sector more broadly um but i would really love to see more organizations uk organizations really thinking about that and putting that at the forefront of their partnership working thinking about yeah moving on to doing something else um well that's it i'm afraid we are out of time um thank you both so much for talking to me today um i hope everybody finds it very interesting i certainly found it very interesting um so thank you very much jatinde and thank you very much Vic. thanks for having us thank you Julian, thanks for bringing us that interview. That was really interesting. How did you find it? Well, I found it um, quite challenging in uh, some ways and quite invigorating in other ways. I think it's really important to think about partnership and the nature of partnership. We often spend, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the work and thinking about the results uh, and not so much time often reflecting on on the partnerships that our organisations have. And so um, I thought it was really good to take a step back and, and think about that. And I would encourage all, all the groups that are listening to this to, to do the same um, and think about really what is the nature of their partnership? Where do the power dynamics lie in that? Um, and how can they work together to make them more effective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a really important point to, to, to think about the power dynamics in our relationship because we might think, oh, I'm just doing a grant application. But even in that, there's a lot of power that influences how decisions are made and, and, and where, the, where the money is spent, isn't there? Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, and what did you uh, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I like the two different perspectives that the um, that both our guest speakers brought um, and they were both really insightful um, and, and, and knew what they were talking about. I found it really engaging. Um, were there any key points that you thought would be worth kind of pulling out for us to think about? One of the things that really came over for me was uh, Yatinda saying that uh, some of the responses to uh, tricky power dynamics is, is, not, is not to withdraw, but to be involved. And while she was very clear that the community has to lead the solution uh, to these issues, but that actually in a successful partnership, everyone is involved. Um, and she was very clear that there are there are lots of roles for Welsh organisations, uh, bringing in expertise and brokering different relationships, uh, as well as bringing in the cash um, that is needed to run some of these projects. So I found that very interesting and quite quite reassuring. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think it's really pertinent, isn't it? Because with the conversations that we've been having about decolonizing aid and um, uh, and our anti-racism work, often we can feel, oh, well, there's, there isn't a role for me here. I should step away. I shouldn't be doing this work. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely good to know that with the right approach, um, there is still a role for the partnerships to, to work together on issues that we're all concerned about. Yeah, exactly. So um, I found it really interesting listening to um, uh, both Vic and Utinde talk about additional costs. Um, so uh, I think 
Vic was talking about full cost recovery and the importance of making sure that grant applications, the budgets within them cover full cost recovery. And she gave some lovely case studies, um, which I'm going to put into the uh, narrative on the Podbean. So if you have a look at Podbean, you'll be able to find the links that Vic refers to when she's talking about full cost recovery. Um, but I think I wanted to kind of pull out from my own experience as Welsh-based organisations, as partners, we also have a bit of a role to use funding applications as opportunities to get that additional support and funding to give space for our partners in Africa to um, to go beyond project costs and so to allow them to grow and develop. Utinda was saying that that was important for her organisation um, and I think it's probably true for a lot of the partners that we work with in the Wales Africa community. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's it's massively important for organisations in in Africa that they've got they've got that ongoing funding, um, and that they've got they've got the funding there to have an office to to pay people uh, to do the sorts of things that you should be doing, and it, it's also important for organisations in Wales, um, they, because they often have running costs that are quite genuine and that need to be met, and it's something about actually how accessible is this kind of work to people in Wales. Um, and um, if, if full cost recovery is not there, um, then is this sort of work only accessible to people who have got the money themselves uh, to fund these sorts of costs and to fund transport costs uh, and office costs? So I think full cost recovery is, is massively important. And um, of course, we don't have we don't have very many funders in Wales. And, and most of those that we do are pretty good at full cost recovery. But um, certainly we should be pushing that message up to uh, to, to funders who are not good at that. Um, and the other thing I think is is really to say to organisations in Wales to, uh, to to not be promoting themselves as as pushing all of the money to project delivery. Um, sometimes you'll see organisations promoting that and saying every penny that you spent gets gets pushed off to, um, uh, to 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 the people in need, and none is spent on offices or staff. Well, actually, that's that's sending a pretty poor message. Um, that actually charity is 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 just cheap and free, whereas uh, in fact this stuff does take resources, and we need to make sure that those resources are there. Yes, absolutely. I I totally agree with you, Julian, because it it sets a, a, a false precedent, doesn't it? Where charities that are able to do that say they might say all the money from public giving goes towards this project. Well, then presumably they have uh, other funds or other mode of support that is helping them with their running costs and so they're in a position to do that um, and it, it gives a false impression that maybe other charities feel that they also need to do that when they don't have that other ongoing support to, to allow them to do it so um, yeah really important point so it'd be good to see the end of that <laughs> um, the, I guess the other thing that I wanted to talk about really quickly was around um, communicating um, how funding mechanisms work. Um, one of the things that Vic pulled out was um, being clear and transparent with um, in-country partners, uh, with African-based partners, um, about explaining why information is being asked for and the purpose of it when developing project proposals and putting in funding applications um, and I guess I just wanted to kind of expand on that that from the perspective of a Welsh-based organisation um, 
as well as explaining why we need the information, we could open up the conversation to ask about ask what information do our partners think is important and what do they think we should be measuring in terms of understanding what success looks like. Um, and of course, the more that we share the process of funding applications and work together on developing funding applications together, like you Cinder says, um, you can get more support. It, it's supporting uh, partner organisations to uh, be able to apply for funding directly themselves. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, I, I, I think there's also a job there for Welsh based organisations to to understand um, why all of these questions are being asked. And um, certainly we should be uh, trying to get funders to be more open about some of these things and actually to be engaging in dialogue with Welsh based organisations and African based organisations themselves about what sort of information is relevant, what is important and what really needs to be um, gathered and, and communicated. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we want to be inclusive and accessible, um, then understanding that there are barriers to some of the information that's been asked for um, will help us to be more equitable in how funding is 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 spent and and shared, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay, lovely. Well, Julian, thank you so much for bringing that to us. It was a really interesting listen. Um, and thank you for uh, the chat. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, no, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Okay, so thank you very much to our two speakers, Yutinda and Vic. Our next podcast is going to be on gender and it's going to be called Women in Wales and Africa. So please do keep an eye out for that. You can learn more about our work at hubcumryafrica.org.wales. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much. Bye.